the human impulse to create art is powerful. You could even say it's more than an impulse, it's a need. And it's evident in every culture across time. Whether through words, music, painting, sculpture, dance, all of these art forms stir ideas and emotions. They engage the personal and the political, and they, they offer the possibility to bring people together or to drive us apart. Hi, I'm Paolo Pietropaolo, and on this season of Countless Journeys, you'll have a chance to get to know some of the incredibly talented artists in the creative and performing arts who also happen to be immigrants to Canada. People like Yusuf Karsh, who fled the Armenian genocide with his family in 1922 when he was 13 years old. Karsh landed in Halifax alone two years later. He would go on to become one of the most famous and influential photographers of the 20th century. By the time of his closing of the studio in uh, Ottawa in 1993, he had literally photographed most of the famous people of the world. Churchill, Castro, Trudeau, Khrushchev, Jacqueline and John Kennedy, Mackenzie King, Diefenbaker, Pearson, Prince Faisal, Benazir Bhutto, Nelson Mandela, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, outstanding achievements in the visual arts, literature, and science. Of course, the famous image of Einstein, Picasso. That's Hilliard Goldfarb, Senior Curator Emeritus with the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. Goldfarb curated a wonderful exhibit of Karsh's photographs that is currently being hosted by the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21. And this beautiful music that you're hearing is called Homecoming. It was composed by Dinuk Wijaratna for the Canadian Museum of Immigration back in 2015 to commemorate the museum's official reopening. Dinuk is a Juno Award-winning composer and performer whose music blurs boundaries and shakes up traditional approaches to classical music. Classical music has a very traditional past. Uh, it has a very centralized past. But I firmly believe that now it is, it should be accessible to everyone. And I think that Everyone, every single artist who says they engage with classical music should feel totally free to express and explore their own identity. Dinuk Wijaratna was born in Sri Lanka and now calls Ottawa home. And that's where I caught up with him for our conversation. All of that is up next on Countless Journeys. Countless journeys. The, the plane began to descend, but we had no idea where we were. We noticed in the distance a terminal building with the Canadian flag, and uh, we had to basically fight for our lives. At that time, it was Portuguese women coming to Canada, like my mother. We were coming here to build a better life, but also to help build Canada. Nous sommes venus ici, le Canada nous a donné le meilleur. Alors, donnons au Canada le meilleur. Instead of feeling torn between my two realities, I decided to feel happy wherever I am. Slowly but surely, I came to realize that, hey, I can make something out of this here. J'ai vraiment réalisé la force de ce pays. 
everywhere I travel now, there's no place like coming home to Canada. Earlier this spring, the Canadian Museum of Immigration was honored to welcome visitors to the opening of an exhibit celebrating the work of legendary photographer Yusuf Karsh. It's called The World of Yusuf Karsh, A Private Essence. It features over 100 of Karsh's portraits and the stories behind them in Karsh's own words. Yusuf Karsh fled the Armenian genocide with his family in 1922. They made their way to Aleppo in Syria, with nothing but the clothes on their backs. Karsh's mother ha- had a brother in Sherbrooke, Quebec, and after saving their money for two years, the family was able to send one child to Canada. Yusuf arrived alone in Halifax. The Museum of Immigration is not far from where Karsh landed on the snowy night of January 1st, 1924, at age 15. Dan Conlon is a curator with the museum. Karsh, like many refugees, had a very challenging voyage to, um, to Canada. Uh, he arrived all alone, uh, speaking no English, just Arabic and French, uh, on New Year's Day, 1924. And uh, because he was alone and had very little money with him, he was actually detained by immigration authorities who were suspicious of this minor without any money for three days. It was um, only when his uncle Nakash arrived from Sherbrooke to vouch for him that he was then released uh, into his uncle's care and could uh, resume his journey to Canadian citizenship. In spite of that, uh, Karsh remembered for the rest of his life the snowy streets of Halifax and his ride in a horse-drawn sleigh, which was acted as the taxi to take him to the uh, railway station in Halifax. And he always thought the sound of the horse bells, the brightly lit shop windows decorated for Christmas were an auspicious sign of his arrival and his beginning of a new life in Canada. Here's exhibit curator Dr. Hilliard Goldfarb. His uncle was a photographer, and he gave him as a gift a brownie camera. Uh, It was simple. You know, you turned the dial, you took the picture, no focusing, and you sent in the film. And uh, they were very popular. This was back in uh, 1924-25. He was learning English. He was gaining friends in school. And uh, one of his friends, without him knowing, he had taken a landscape photograph, uh, sent it in for a contest. He won first prize, which was $50, almost all of which he sent back to Aleppo. But his uncle, so to speak, went, aha. Karsh's uncle, Nakash, knew a prominent Armenian photographer living in Boston. His name was John Garrow. It's said he looked like Mark Twain. Nakash sent young Yusuf to apprentice with Garrow and thus ended Karsh's ambitions to practice medicine. Karsh became enthralled with photography. Garrow taught him about lighting and darkroom technique, but Garrow also taught him something more important. Karsh later wrote, Garrow taught me to see and to remember what I saw. In 1931, Karsh left Boston and set up a studio in Ottawa. Why Ottawa? Well, one of the reasons was the opportunity to photograph famous people who came through the capital. He also joined a community theater group, and that led to a fateful meeting. Uh, he also uh, was interested in theatrical lighting, and he met the son of the governor general, played you know all the young, handsome male roles, uh, Lord Bessborough. And through that son, he got to do the 1935 official portrait of Lord Bessborough as governor general. And then he got to meet Mackenzie King, 
photographing him with FDR in Quebec City in 1935. And King really took a shine to him and got him the commissions uh, that ultimately led to the, the photograph that changed his entire career, the image of Winston Churchill. You may have seen this photo. Churchill looks formidable, pugnacious, not happy. It's a, a truly iconic image, and it has a great backstory. The Prime Minister, William Lyon Mackenzie King, was a champion of the young Karsh. King gave Karsh the chance to shoot a portrait of Winston Churchill. An amazing opportunity. The only trouble was King hadn't told Churchill. Here's Dr. Goldfarb with the story. Uh, so Mackenzie King had him set up his lights and cameras in the speaker's office, okay? And this is 1941, the summer, when he comes over to try to raise support for Great Britain during the war and before America's official entry. And he uh, comes back in, lo and behold, with Churchill on his arm uh, a few minutes later. And Churchill had not been told there'd be a photograph. And he was not happy. He was extremely grumpy, in fact. And so uh, they set him up, nonetheless. He begrudgingly agrees, of course. And Churchill is smoking a large cigar. And so uh, very politely, uh, Karsh goes up to him with an ashtray and says, please, sir. And he clearly indicates he's not going to remove the cigar. So uh, Karsh went back, made some token gestures with the lens, raced up, pulled the cigar out of his mouth, uh, went back and took the photograph while Churchill was still furious, fuming. And it came out as this magnificent image of uh, showing the formidable uh, assertiveness and uh, determination uh, Churchill, when he saw it, loved it. He actually photographed Churchill later on several occasions. Uh, and the photograph instantly went around the world, making this extraordinary reputation for uh, Karsh. Uh, by 1943, he was already summoned, so to speak, to Britain, where he photographed King George VI, as well as George Bernard Shaw and other leading literary and, and uh, social figures in, in London. The photographs featured in the exhibit are silver gelatin prints, made by Karsh himself. They're sharp, striking, with so much depth. They have so much more power than the tiny images we're used to looking at on our phones. Photographers don't necessarily do all their own printing, but these images are from the master's own hand, exactly as he wanted them. Dr. Goldfarb personally selected more than 100 prints for this show. They were all made by Karsh himself. They were provided by his widow, Estrellita Karsh, who is in her 90s now and lives in Boston. Karsh wasn't content to just photograph politicians and celebrities. He also photographed leaders of civil rights and anti-oppression movements. And that makes sense for someone whose early years were marked by persecution. Karsh's images of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Nelson Mandela are instantly recognizable. There is a, a stunning portrait in the exhibit of trailblazing singer Portia White, a descendant of black loyalists who settled in Nova Scotia. White became the first world-renowned black Canadian singer and the first Canadian to sing at New York's venerated town hall in 1944. Here's Dan Conlon. Karsh is of tremendous interest uh, to us at, uh, at the Canadian Museum of Creation at Pier 21. His work 
and accomplishments are an outstanding example of uh, immigrant contributions. You know, all that he gave to Canadian culture and world culture show you um, a stunning example of what uh, many immigrants contribute. But also his experience uh, as a refugee coming to Canada is, is very relevant to the challenges that refugees face um, today, uh, coming to Canada under dire circumstances, fleeing persecution all over the world. And so we were delighted to be able to present Kars's work and his story as a, as a refugee um, uh, in partnership with the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts in this terrific exhibit. The Karsh exhibit in Halifax opened March 12th and runs until October 16, 2022. This piece of music is called Homecoming. It's by the Juno Award-winning composer Dinuk Widjaratna. Widjaratna refers to it as perhaps the most meaningful piece he's ever written. He wrote it for the official reopening of the Canadian Museum of Immigration in 2015. Coincidentally, the year Widjaratna became a Canadian citizen. Dinuk was born in Sri Lanka and raised in Dubai in a creative family environment. His mother was a ballet teacher, and his father could play a pretty good jazz piano. Dinuk has performed on the biggest stages, like Carnegie Hall, the Lincoln Center, and the Opera Bastille, alongside musical luminaries like Yo-Yo Ma and Zakir Hussain. I spoke recently with Dinuk from Ottawa, where he is artistic director of the University of Ottawa Orchestra and assistant professor of orchestral studies at the University of Ottawa, and I began our conversation by asking him when he knew that music would be a big part of his life. I, I had a sort of epiphany when I was 12 years old, and that was, I, I, I think, the moment I decided I wanted music in my life was when I heard a piece, uh, uh, a piano concerto by Mozart. And, and I remember thinking, this is just the most glorious thing I've ever heard, and whatever it is, whatever this is, I just want to become closer to it. You know, but of course, you at that point, you don't know anything about the person who's writing it and you don't know where mm-hmm. it's come from. You just hear it as sound, you know. Um, so, I mean, that I would say was was some kind of spiritual experience before I, before I knew anything about religion. But then all the other great discoveries about music were more sort of subtle. You know, it was a kind of organic uh, move in a direction where you just think, oh, okay, but I know I'm being trained in one kind of music, but I, I have all these sounds of, of, of uh, South Asian and Middle Eastern cultures in my ear. Um, how can I discover them? And that, that was a more gradual process. So your sound world, your, your music world was extremely rich and varied. Very much so. And um, what I loved about growing up in Dubai was that while I was actually studying in, in Western schools and, and taking Western music um, classes. I was also, you know, early on, I was studying Mirdangam, which is an Indian, South Indian uh, percussion instrument. I was hearing Arabic music all around me. I was uh, hearing Indian classical music, Sri Lankan music, of course. And I think without having someone necessarily say, you should be listening to this or that, that ended up being very positive, you know, as opposed to someone, you know, really trying to curate your playlist for you. Um, I was just left to my own devices musically. I'm trying to imagine what it was like for you growing up in, in a 
big multicultural city like Dubai to then going to study in a cultural city like Manchester and then going to study in a big multicultural city like New York City. And not that Halifax isn't multicultural, it is, but it's not quite as big as the others. <laughs> so what was it like for you to arrive, new country, new job in Halifax? It was, it was interesting. It was um, a combination of very opposing things because on, on the one hand, I was going from New York City and I was, at this point, I considered myself a New Yorker and I would, you know, on the streets of Halifax, I would, I would cut people up and walk in a very rude way, right? <laughs> you know, As one while, does in New yeah, York. <laughs> while, while the lovely people of Halifax were smiling at me for no reason, right? And, and <laughs> he, here am I thinking, why is that person smiling at me? I don't know who they are, right? And now it's the other way. Like I go to New York and I smile at people for no reason, right? So, um, um, so, so on the one hand, it was this uh, shift to us, uh, I would say, uh, a slower pace of life just in terms of a sort of city feel which I appreciated. And it was, yeah, it was a really exciting period. You, you, you come to a country like Canada and you, and you enter this world of classical music, which traditionally and still is predominantly white um, as a conductor and as a composer to fields in classical music, which are dominated, you know, by these revered dead white male figures. <laughs> What's that been like for you uh, to come into that world as a Sri Lankan-born Canadian? Yeah, Paolo, this is a, a great question. And that leads this leads to a big discussion that everyone wants to have, you know, because classical music has a very traditional past. Uh, it has a very centralized past. But I firmly believe that now it is, it should be accessible to everyone. And I think that Everyone, every single artist who says they engage with classical music should feel totally free to express and explore their own identity. I have been lucky enough to do that. Um, a, uh, just one example is, you know, a career making piece uh, for me was my 2011 Tabla Concerto, which was simply an idea I had where I just thought, you know, I, I'm in love with this instrument, which comes from South Asia. And... Um, I just thought, well, you know, what, what if this instrument can have a platform um, and, and be showcased in dialogue with this other instrument that I love passionately, which is the Western Classical Symphony Orchestra. And, and it just simply began with an idea like that. And I just thought, well, I'm, I was lucky enough that no one really stood in my way. Just people wanted to find help find solutions to try and get the piece off the ground. And, you know, it, it's just one example of some kind of artistic product that one would come up with if one just wants to tell a story, right? It's an autobiographical story. I'm, you know, I'm in love with the cultural exchange between East and West. And, and I guess that is just one example of some kind of musical embodiment of that. And I just think now, you know, if I've been lucky enough to be able to tell that kind of story, think of how many other stories there are that could be told through the lens of classical music and that and that forum. I wonder if you've had any encounters recently with younger musicians who are coming from non-traditional classical music backgrounds. I put it in quotation marks. Uh, <laughs> have you have you had an opportunity to, to to share some of your experience with with younger up and coming musicians like that? You know, I really try to empower them. I I I want them to feel 
that no one should be telling them how to find a way to tell their story using this medium. You know, I think it is a wonderful medium. It just, you know, and, and we, we have to respect the tradition in the sense that we have to respect the fact that all of these great artists, um, Mozart included, you know, he's still a hero of mine. I hear his music and, and I'm happy to hear it as sound, as an expression of the human spirit. And, you know, it just happened. I think all of this music happened to come from, you could say, a very sort of centralized place. But now it is spread across the world. You know, the canvas is wide open for anyone to tell their story. Um, I, I do my best to try and empower young artists to feel, yes, it is a blank canvas. It's just waiting for your ideas. And you can use the same sounds that uh, all of these past musicians have used. That's a lovely analogy. I like that analogy. Uh, you mentioned your tabla concerto. I want to ask you about another piece of yours, Homecoming, this wonderful piece that you composed in 2015 for the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21 in Halifax. Uh, you've called that piece your most meaningful commission. Why was it so meaningful to you? Yeah, and, and you know, and this is in comparison to commissions which, have, which were for very large forces, very big pieces, you know, that took years and years uh, to, to write. Um, but this piece literally fits on two pages, right? It's a two-page score, very, very simple. But it's so meaningful for me because the, uh, the museum commissioned it for their opening maybe two months after I'd got my citizenship. So I think it was 2015. And uh, so it was just, you know, the, the timing was perfect. And I really sort of poured my heart out into this piece. And um, it gets played a lot. And I'm, I'm very, very fond of it. Tell me about the piece. What do you want people to hear in it? I am fascinated by how people define the word home. Because to some people, it is defined by some kind of geographical coordinate. It could be um, the place where your loved ones live. Uh, it could be a place that, uh, you know, you feel compelled to contribute to in a significant way. But I think my definition is that home is actually some kind of ephemeral window in time. You know, when I think about my childhood, I, I, and, and so many places, I, I've called many places home, but I'm aware that that window of time has passed, right? And then I try to accept the, the beauty of this new window that I'm currently in, right, the present, knowing that that will change. And, and I guess this is the way I look at it because I think it explains for me this sort of bittersweet quality that home has for everyone. You know, it's always a bittersweet thing. People won't say it's, it's 100% happy or 100% sad. Somewhere in between, deliciously in between, right? And, but I'm quite happy to accept that there are so many definitions and I, mm -hmm. I, uh, maybe I'm writing these pieces just to get to the point where I get to speak to the audience and ask them what their ideas are. But it, um, I know that the notion of home is, is very uh, pro provocative for people. Do you ever grapple with nostalgia for your own previous definitions of home? Yeah, but I think, and, and you know, I think I, I had the kind of life where um, I was sort of moving around a lot, or rather there was a, always a feeling of transience, right? And transience is something that is embedded in music. I mean, you could argue that every musical moment is just a transition to get somewhere else. Totally. So, so in a sense, you know, if you are trying to be comfortable making music, you have to actually ironically be comfortable with being in transition all the time. You're always in motion. 
so so I've I, I guess I've tried to sort of reframe in that sense. I try to look at it like you know enjoy the moment because it's always shape shifting. I want to ask you a bit about your uh, definition or understanding your personal relationship to the idea of citizenship because a lot of people don't know that in the United Arab Emirates non-Emirati are unable to become citizens so you grew up in a place where you couldn't become a citizen and now here years later you became a Canadian citizen you wrote this piece of music can you walk me through your idea of what citizenship means to you personally hmm. and, I, and I wonder whether I would have different ways of answering that question depending on where I was. You know, maybe that, maybe citizenship right. is relative to how we perceive freedom, right? And, mm. and of course, that's a very sort of hot topic at the moment. But I think, you know, that, that's another thing, that, that this dichotomy between freedom and structure is something which is also always in music, you know, and how we express ourselves as, as uh, human beings. We're always grappling with that. But for me, yes, I grew up in a country where essentially... You know, it felt like home. And as a child, I really embraced it. And I was so in love with all of the influences that were coming my way. But at the same time, as I grew older, as a, te- as a teenager, I started to become aware of the fact that, yes, I didn't have a passport. You know, there was always this feeling of transience. And so I had to get used to that. That, was, that, that caused a certain kind of uh, feeling. Um, and so I think it was very, very powerful for me to get citizenship here when, in, in 2015. Maybe... I can't separate citizenship from artistic expression. Maybe it's just who I am. Maybe I'm, I'm trying to add value to the world in some way. If I can do that with respect and, and be genuine and, 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 and sincere, maybe that is a good form of citizenship. And I think, you know, because music is very interactive, you do collaborate with people, you do meet people. And it has been a way for me to meet all kinds of people and exchange ideas. And that is an important uh, aspect of citizenship, trying to understand all the other stories around you and how you connect with other people. You've called so many different places home. How do you present yourself to somebody? How do you say, this is who I am and where I'm from with with such a varied story? Um, Well, first of all, it depends on how much time I have, right, to tell a story. <laughs> and but, but as a quick snapshot, you know, I don't know, here I am. Um, I'm uh, very happy to be Canadian now. I'm, I'm uh, trying to be um, an artist and I'm trying to be a, uh, a proficient musician and, and that is a, a lifelong journey. So, I, yeah, I guess that's my answer. <laughs> Short and sweet. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, in a way, in a way, that's a great answer, because how can you encapsulate? I, I love how you've described the act of engaging with music as as giving you a way through those moments of, of grappling with identity and, and, and tension. Do you think it's given you an edge? Is that a superpower for you to have had all of that wonderful mix in your life and then to to be able to let it flow into your art? I, I wouldn't call it a superpower, but I think, you know, it's an edge in the sense that I, I, I can't imagine people not having access to music or the arts. So I just feel fortunate that I get to escape or understand different worlds through sound. And I, and I would say the same if I watched a very provocative film, something inspiring, or, or saw painting from 
that was hundreds of years old. I just can't imagine people not having that mm-hmm, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. having access to that. And I think, you know, going back to this notion of uh, educating people uh, in the arts, I think what, what you're doing is you're not trying to say, well, I'm not trying to create an army of professional artists. Not at all. I'm, I'm just trying to allow people greater access to something with a bit more understanding. So, you know, that piece I heard when I was 12, as I, as I heard it first purely intuitively, but the more you understand something, I think the more depth there is. Tell me a bit about your work with Orchestras Canada, um, what you do there and what you hope to achieve there. Yes, at the moment, I'm very happy to be uh, on the board of equity and diversity with Orchestras Canada, uh, trying to assess, you know, how we can create as many resources for or the um, Canadian orchestral scene as possible in terms in terms of how they can um, continue along on their journey of increasing uh, diversity of artistic expression for everyone in this sector. How can you achieve that? How does that look? As a pedagogue, I think going back to what I said before, I think the best I can do is to make young artists feel free enough and unhindered enough to be able to tell their story. I mean, I've been blessed to be, I I was very lucky. No one really got in my way, but I know that that's not the same for a lot of my colleagues. And and no one should be telling them, oh, well, you know, if you imagine this sound because you want to tell your story in music, uh, well, I don't know, I don't think it's the right time. I mean, that's just complete rubbish, right? Like I said, the canvas is blank and it's it's ready for your story. I love that sentiment. I, I think for many people who grow up studying classical music, it can feel quite restrictive and prescriptive. There is a way to be, and there are certain things that ought to be done and a certain way to do them. And, uh, and, and hearing you speak about freedom to express your own story, whatever it may be, wherever you may be from, uh, to me, that's a, a beautiful idea. The fact that you had that freedom is a wonderful thing. Uh, and it's great to see you share that with, with others. Thank you. Well, I've been lucky to have it, and and I will keep trying to pass on that sentiment. Do you think that is still a problem in in classical music, that restrictive nature? Of course. I think, and not just in classical music, Paolo, because I think, you know, as humans, um, you know, we love art because uh, art is this beautiful dance of patterns, right? Like our brains, we we thrive on pattern recognition, right? And if there were were no pattern recognition, a composer couldn't do anything interesting with music, right? Or a painter couldn't do anything interesting on a canvas. But the patterns are a blessing and a curse because what the patterns do, or rather what we do with the patterns is give us a pattern and we'll very easily become ingrained or set in our ways. And so in, in any industry, we risk seeing a pattern as something that should be done the way it's done right? Or, or as it was done, right? And so the, que- the question is, can we always have fun with disrupting patterns, making interesting commentary on a tradition for the sake of freshness, you know, all of these things that we are happy to label as traditions, I mean, they were innovations. So it's important to realize that in the arts, you know, we are always in motion, there is no such thing as a fixed point, a lovely philosophy. Dinuk Vijaratna, thank you so much uh, for speaking with me. Thank you so much, Paolo. If you'd like to hear more stories like this one, 
and help new listeners discover this podcast, make sure to rate Countless Journeys on your favorite podcast app or leave us a review. Countless Journeys comes to you from the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21, located at the Halifax Seaport. Thanks for listening. My name is Paolo Pietro Paolo. Bye for now.